Hi, Curious Listener. Michelle O'Dell here with Corn Fed Killer. We are continuing the BTK, a.k.a. Dennis Raider saga. This is part two. When I left you at part one, we had discussed the savage murders of the Otero family. And we are going to pick up from there. So after Dennis Raider had slayed the entire, or almost the entire, Otero family. He went on with life as usual. He went to church, where he helped with the youth group. He went to school. He spent time with his wife. He just went on as if everything was normal. Isn't it, uh, you know, remarkable Sick and twisted, of course, but remarkable that someone can compartmentalize such glaringly different parts of themselves. You know, he can be a murderer one one minute and then turn around and be a loving husband the next minute. It's mind-boggling that humans have the capacity, or some humans anyway, have the capacity to do this. It's crazy. All right. Well, Dennis... He had a lot of practice with this. We're going to get into just a little bit about his childhood. As a child, he would become sexually aroused when he was being spanked. He would become sexually aroused by imagining women being bound and tortured. He would cut out pictures of beautiful women from magazines and then draw gags and bindings on them. And then he would take those pictures and paste them onto index cards and carry them around so he could look at them whenever he wanted to. He even told Dr. Catherine Ramsland, author of the book Confession of a Serial Killer, The Untold Story of Dennis Rader, the BTK Killer. And, you know, if you get a chance, I recommend reading that book that he would get aroused even when he would see chickens about to be slaughtered. It's strange. It's very strange. He would read books about murders and torture and then masturbate to them. Dennis managed to keep his disturbing fantasies and actions to himself. And, you know, albeit he was having these dark, dark fantasies, he had a pretty normal, you know, quote-unquote normal childhood. His parents were around, and as far as I know, there was no abuse ever documented or reported. He had a brother, and this brother claimed that after Dennis was proven to be the BTK killer, that he and his family never saw any signs that he would become a brutal, brutal murderer. They were totally shocked. And, you know, the brother says his mother is in complete disbelief. She could not even imagine Dennis doing something so cruel and sadistic and evil. Now, granted, she is his mother. And, you know, as a mom, I know how we view our children. But still, you know, at school, Dennis was a quiet kid, not overly bright, not athletic, really. Just, you know, an average kid, at least on the outside. He graduated high school, and then he went into the Air uh, Air Force for four years before attending college. 
And that brings us to where we are now. As we said, he is a student at Wichita State. And when he wasn't playing good husband and good student, he would watch pornos and fantasize about murder, about binding, about torture. He would also like to look at the small trophies that he had taken from the Otero's home. He hid them in his house where, you know, he figured his wife wouldn't find them. He did, however, flauntingly wear Joseph Otero's watch on his wrist. Not, you know, right on his wrist out in the open, not giving a shit, you know, who saw it. I wonder what he told his wife when and if she noticed it. I'm sure she noticed it. Dennis also took to writing about the murder and about his, his fantasies. And he wrote about this, the Otero murder in detail. And then he filed it away in a binder where his wife wouldn't find it. And he brought it out anytime he wanted to reread it. And then in a sense, relive the murders. And this would make him aroused. He signed the document BTK. BTK stood for Bind Them, Torture Them, Kill Them. And this was the nickname that he gave himself. This man, <laughs> he's a joke. He's such a joke. He was, you know, really into reading about murders and serial killers and, you know, looked up to Bundy and other, Ed Kemper and other, you know, serial killers who all ended up having, you know, nicknames generally. And so he thought he should have one too. So he decided that that should be the BTK killer or BTK strangler or, you know, eventually got shortened to just BTK. Uh, you know, he thought it was so cool. And this is just beyond. I mean, he's a dick. We can see that clearly, but this is just, you know, beyond pathetic, really. He's a douchebag, you know, and in fact, you know, screw BTK, <laughs> douchebag Dennis. That's what I'm calling him. All right. So douchebag Dennis was bothered, even ashamed at the mistakes he had made when killing the Oteros, like forgetting the knife and having to go back and get it, you know, possibly allowing himself to be seen. And he vowed that he would do better next time. And he was already preparing for the next time. Dennis spent hours upon hours stalking women, learning their routines, figuring out if he thought that they would be a good pursuit. And if they weren't, he would stop stalking a certain woman and then go and stalk a different woman. He spent, you know, the majority of any of his free time or time when he was supposed to be working or studying doing just that. And he really started getting into inventing nicknames and abbreviations for the things that he did. He called whatever it was inside him that made him kill Factor X or the monster within. So he would later on, and we'll see, you know, in letters, he would say, you know, I can't help the monster within or when Factor X takes over 
I can't control it, something like that. And trolling was what he did when he stalked women. And the women he targeted, he called them projects or PJs for, for short. And he would write down all, you know, he would record in a, you know, journal, basically everything that he did, every PJ, every project, every woman he stalked, even if he abandoned that woman to stalk someone else, he recorded it all. All right, so just a few weeks after Douchebag Dennis killed the Oteros, he started looking for his next project. And like I said, he kept track of all the different women that he thought might be the next target, the next project. And then finally, he spotted a woman called Catherine Bright. And he called her Project Lights Out. Catherine was a 21-year-old young woman and she had grown up in Kansas, and she was close to her immediate and to her extended family. She regularly hung out with her cousins and would often visit her grandparents on their farm. And she worked at Coleman. Coincidentally, Julie Otero had also worked there. Dennis saw her one afternoon while driving his wife to lunch. So he's trolling even whilst he's driving his poor wife, Paula, to lunch. What Dennis noticed about Catherine was her long blonde hair and that she was wearing a jean jacket that for some reason caught his eye and he started stalking her immediately. He followed her to work and back home. He followed her when she went shopping and when she spent time on her grandparents farm when she went out with her cousins. He followed her for weeks he concluded that she was a good target because she lived alone, she didn't seem to have a boyfriend, and she didn't have any kids, and he never noticed a dog. So he was hoping the absence of kids and a dog and a husband or a boyfriend would help him to avoid all the fumbles that he had made in his first murders, the Otero murders. So he started preparing to murder her, he squeezed rubber balls in order to strengthen his hands. He hoped that it would be easier to strangle Catherine if his hands were stronger. It had taken a long time to strangle the Oteros. And he talks later, and it's a little bit, in well, a lot of bit in more detail in um, the book I mentioned, Confessions of a Serial Killer. He was really shocked at how much force it took to strangle the Oteros and particularly how long it took to strangle them to death. He talked about how he had only ever strangled cats and animals before and he didn't realize how much it would take. So he, you know, used those like stress ball things to try to strengthen his hands. All right. So he decided that he would that he would show up at Catherine Bright's door with a stack of books. He figured that she was a student as well. And he, you know, was a student and he would tell her that he needed a quiet place to study or that he he had knocked on the wrong door or something like that. And then when she opened it, he would simply force her inside and then force his way in, you know, push his way in with her. All right. So 
bumbling douchebag Dennis kind of messed things up <laughs> like like he he often did. Um, it started off different than he had planned because when he showed up this time and knocked at the door, she didn't answer. And he went around to the back and broke glass. And that's how he got inside. So he had already fumbled this, bumbled it up, you know, already. Because he had not intended to break the glass. And then after he did, he was worried that she would see it and then not go in. Or that someone driving by would see it. But he did not flee. He didn't bail on the plan. Even though it did not go, did not start off how he wanted, he decided he would, you know, keep going with it. So he hid in her bedroom and waited for her to come inside. And then once he was inside her room, he took out his gun to turn off the safety so that he could have it ready when she got home. And he accidentally fired. <laughs> I mean, this dude, it's just laughable. He's such a bumbling idiot, really. He's like the Barney Fife of murderers. <laughs> If you get that reference. Um, so then he's like, oh no, you know, what if someone heard that shot? So he's starting to freak out a little bit. And then he even thinks, well, what if Catherine smells the gunpowder when she comes home and turns around and walks back out? So he, you know, even thought about bailing now, just running back out the door. But he didn't. He waited. And when she came home, she was not alone as douchebag Dennis had thought she would be. She had a man with her. Dennis could hear them talking from the, or from the bedroom, and he had the Colt 22, and he also had a 357 Magnum with him, and he had strapped that in a shoulder holster. He figured he could get the couple to comply if he used the guns. Same kind of thinking that he had when he went into the Yotero's home. So he stepped out of the bedroom, brandishing the guns, and he told the pair to do as he said. And like he had done at the Otero murder scene, he tried to calm Catherine and her companion. He figured that if he could get them to feel not safe, because who's going to feel safe with a gun pointed at them, but if he could get them feel relaxed, calm, and get them to believe that he was going to let them go, that he wasn't going to kill them, that he could get them to comply. It had worked, you know, with the Oteros pretty much. And so this is what he was trying to do. He told Catherine and the man that he had to get to New York, that he was wanted man, and that he just needed money and he needed a car. And he said, I'm going to tie you up. So I can get away, but I'm not going to hurt you. I don't want to hurt you. I just want your money and I just want your car. So Dennis forgot to bring rope, though. Because, you know, he had figured that Catherine would be alone and he thought he could use her pantyhose. He loved to use pantyhose to tie up women. He's a dope, you know, what a dope. So he took them to the bedroom where he ransacked her drawers. He found some pantyhose, some bandanas, some belts, and some t-shirts, and he decided that he would use these items to bind them. He told the young man 
who he figured might have been a boyfriend, who actually turns out to be Catherine's brother, Kevin, to tie up Catherine, or to tie uh, Catherine's hands, her, her wrists together. He does. And then he took them to another room where he tied Kevin's hands together and his feet to a bedpost. Then he asked Kevin for money. Kevin told Dennis he had a few bucks in his shirt pocket, and Dennis took it. He then led Catherine back to her, back to the other room, the other bedroom, or back to her bedroom, where he sat her down and tied her to a chair. He bound her ankles to the chair. He asked her where the keys were, the car keys, and she told him. And, you know, he was still working on trying that story of trying to get them to believe that he was only there for money and for transportation. He decided that he would kill Kevin first. He wanted to take his time with Catherine and he figured he would, you know, get rid of the bigger threat first. So he employed a pair of Catherine's nylons and tied them around Kevin's throat and pulled. But Kevin was not having it. He got free from the bedpost and he charged at Dennis. Dennis grabbed the twenty-two and he shot Kevin in the head. He fell and blood was flowing all over the floor. Catherine started screaming, demanding to know what douchebag Dennis had done to her brother. And he's also, you know, starting to really freak out because now he's fired two shots and he's worried that the neighbors will hear. So he's starting to feel like he's got a rush. He's not going to be able to spend the time with Catherine that he really wanted to. Well, Raider lied to Catherine and he said that he had shot him and he didn't want to, but he had to because he came at him, but that he would be okay. He wasn't that hurt. Raider promised that he would call an ambulance after he left, that Kevin would be just fine. Catherine wasn't buying his BS either and she struggled hard. She wanted to see her brother. She wanted to see if he was okay. So Raider went to check on Kevin in his mind to make sure he was dead and in a way to appease Catherine to make her think, yeah, I just checked on him. He's all right. He was not dead. He had gotten free of the wrist bindings and charged at Raider once again. Kevin grabbed for the gun and they fought. Eventually, Dennis was able to get control of the gun and shot Kevin in the face and he fell once again. So he ran back to Catherine and she was struggling hard against her restraints. He grabbed one of the bandanas and he looped it around her throat, pulling her head back. She broke free from the chair and he was in full panic mode now because she is, you know, fighting like crazy. He punches her in the face and head and upper body several times. She keeps fighting, screaming, you know, clawing at him, hitting him back. Then he took a knife and he stabbed her several times in the back, in the gut. She kept fighting. They thrashed around the room. Her blood was splattered all over the walls and the floor. And then... According to Dennis, after what had seemed like forever, ever, she finally collapsed on the floor. Then he hears the front door bang open. He thinks, Kevin, oh my God, he's not dead. 
So douchebag Dennis runs for the door and he sees Kevin running down the street. This Kevin Bright is a motherfucking badass beast, you know? He got shot in the head and the face. And he's still alive and running. He goes back to Catherine. He shoots her and he leaves. He had bungled the second murder even worse than the first murder. Now you know why that, you know, well, you probably already knew why, but now you can see even more of a reason why Douchebag Dennis is the appropriate nickname for this guy. He, you know, not that any murder is good. Obviously, no murder is good. No murderer is good. But there are many murderers who are much more efficient. Dennis sucks. You know, he sucks at being a murderer. He sucks at life, you know. So, Kevin miraculously manages to get to a neighbor after having been shot in the head and the face and is able to tell them that someone has broken into his sister's house and was inside attacking her. The neighbors, of course, call the police and they take Kevin straight to the hospital. Officer Dennis Landon arrives at Catherine's home and he went he went into the back door and an officer Raymond Fletcher went to the front guns drawn they're ready because they think that the perpetrator is probably still there that was the information that Kevin had given cuz he was there when he ran out and when they get there they find Catherine on the living room floor bleeding profusely she had a phone in her hand she had apparently crawled to the phone remember he had left her in a bedroom so she after he, you know, bolted, after Dennis bolted, she had crawled to the phone. Astonishingly, she was still alive when police got there. She even managed to tell the police her age and shake her head no when asked if she knew the person who stabbed her. The officers took towels from the kitchen and placed them, you know, pressed them to her wounds. She, it turns out, had been stabbed 11 times to try to slow the, the bleeding, they could see that she was fading. They untied her ankles, removed the cord from her throat, and told her to hold on, hold on. The ambulance would be there any second. Meanwhile, Kevin was trying to tell officers what had happened when he when he was at the hospital, but he he couldn't really talk. There was blood filling his throat, and his some of his teeth were missing from being shot in the frickin' face. And back in the ICU... Catherine died a few hours later, so poor Catherine did not make it. Kevin did, though. Kevin survived, and he was able to give police a description of Dennis. He told them he was about 28, and he was. Light complexion, mustache, dark hair, and he even remembered the watch, Joe Otero's watch, that Dennis was wearing. Meanwhile, douchebag Dennis drove to his parents' house, and hid the guns in their shed. He took off his bloody clothes and shoes and hid them in the chicken coop. Remember how he used to enjoy watching the chickens before they got slaughtered? His parents, you know, had chickens. He had grown up in a sort of uh, small farm. All right. Then after that, he went home to his wife. Went home to Paula like, hey, Paula, nothing's wrong. 
Over the next couple days, though, Dennis was pretty anxious. He was sure that the cops would be knocking on his door any minute to arrest him. He had made, you know, too many mistakes. He was sure someone had seen him, had heard the gunshots, and obviously Kevin had gotten away. So he thought, oh no, this is it. I'm done for. But the days went by and no one came for him. He wrote about Catherine's murder and the ways in which he would do better next time in his journals. In October, three inmates told their jailers that they had information about the Otero murders. The police brought them in. The newspapers pounced on the single angle before the police could even talk to the men, printing the story that three inmates knew who killed the Oteros. As it would happen, the inmates didn't know anything and were just jerking with the police. Douchebag Dennis saw the story in the Eagle, and it pissed him off. He would not be denied credit for the murders. This gives us quite a bit of insight into who Dennis is. He wants the attention. He wants the credit. He thinks being a murderer is the tits. He likes the name. He wants the notoriety. So he called Dan Granger, and he was the author of the article. And he told Dan Granger that there was a letter about the murders hidden in a book at the public library. And he told Granger exactly where to find it. Granger relayed the information to the police. An officer named Bernie Drowowski found the letter right where Dennis said it would be. The letter was full of misspellings and grammatical errors. The police speculated that the writer was either disabled, learning disabled somehow, or was purposely making errors to throw them off. The letter described the murders of Julie, Joseph, Joey, and Josephine. He even listed what they were wearing and where Josie's glasses were located. The excerpt that you heard at the beginning of part one came from this letter, where he talks about the monster in his brain. He indicates in the letter that he's going to kill again, and soon, and he signed the letter BTK. This letter was an important lead, but police decided to keep it quiet for now. They were worried that releasing the letter might prompt him to kill again or that it would inspire copycat killers. So the police department decided to try a new tactic. They noted, you know, of course, it seemed like BTK read the newspaper. So the police ran a personal ad addressing BTK directly, telling him, that help was available and provided a number he could call. They ran this ad for several days. He didn't call. After the killer had not responded to the personal ad, the police decided to ask for help from Granger, the reporter, directly and ask him to publish an article in which he told the killer, the police are just wanting to help you. They're waiting to help you. You just need to call this number. And if you don't want to call the number, 
you can reach out to me. And he did. He ran that article. Meanwhile, Dennis Rader got a new job, and his job was at the security company ADT. I'm sure you've heard of it. After the Otero murders, ADT experienced a boom in sales in Wichita and were hiring new installers. Douchebag Dennis took full advantage of that and got hired there. And he now had access to the inside of customers' homes and thus to the homes of possible targets. A year went by since the Oteros had been savagely murdered, and the police were not any closer to catching their killer. Likewise, the police were stumped as to who killed Catherine Bright and who had almost killed Kevin Bright. In fact, police had not made the connection between the two crimes and did not know that the same man had killed the Oteros and Catherine. And in the next couple of years, Dennis Rader laid low. Now, he still had the fantasies, the desires to torture, to bind, to kill, but he didn't act on them. He stopped for a few years. He went to work, he went to school, and his wife gave birth to a son whom they called Brian. Everyone who knew the couple, Dennis and Paula, regarded them as a loving couple who appeared to be to really love each other, and they were happy. They seemed happy. Raider played house well, but would later complain that his wife and kid had gotten in the way of what he wanted to do which, of course, was to stalk and kill women. On St. Patrick's Day, March 17th, 1977, so now we are six years since the murders of the Oteros. Or no, I'm sorry, three years, three years. Dennis decides that he has had a long enough break for for murder from murder and he decides he's going to plan his next attack he once again stalked several women and kept detailed notes on all of them and for this attack he had picked out a woman and then also a backup that lived just a block away from the first target just in case things went south he dressed nice and he put a photograph of his own wife and son in his briefcase and planned to use that photograph and present himself as a detective. He was going to knock on the target's door, show her the photo, and ask her if she had seen the woman or her son, saying that they were missing and that he was working hard to find them. So, you know, he this, this motherfucker, he just stooped to another low using his own wife the you know picture of his own wife and son to aid him in carrying out his sick torture murder fantasy okay so he gets to the car target's door but she doesn't answer 
he noticed a little boy walking alone in the neighborhood nearby the target's home. So Dennis stops the boy and he shows him the picture and he asks him if he had seen the people in the photo. The boy says no and keeps walking. Dennis watched him go home. This little boy named Stephen was just six years old and he had been sent to the neighborhood grocery store for soup. His mother and his siblings were back home all sick with the flu. So, you know, and this seems outrageous to us that a mother would send her six-year-old alone to walk to a store and buy soup. At the time, it wasn't so odd. And what the mother had done was call ahead to the store and say, hey, my six-year-old son, Stephen, is coming to get this soup. And he would have, or the shopkeeper, he or she would have known Catherine and Stephen. It was, you know, that kind of neighborhood. And the store was a few blocks away. All right. So a few minutes later, after he had watched little Stephen go through his door, he knocked on the door where he lived and Stephen's mother, a woman named Shirley Vian, and his little brother, Bud, and his little sister, Stephanie Four, opened the door. Shirley opened the door, you know, and... You could see the children. Shirley had put on her house coat and the briefcase man, that's what little Stephen had called him. He recognized him as the briefcase man. He flashed her a fake business card, took a few steps in, and then closed the door. As soon as the door shut, he pulled out a gun and he pointed it at Shirley. He told her that he had a sex problem and was going to tie her up and have sex with her, but that the children would be okay. She told him that she was sick and that the children were sick, and Dennis could see that they were, but he could not be dissuaded. He went around the house, pulling blinds down and closing curtains. The phone rang, and Shirley said that it would be someone calling to check on her and the children, maybe the school, since she had kept them home from school that day. Dennis instructed her not to answer it, appearing unfazed by it, but inside he was nervous, thinking that maybe someone would stop by to check on Shirley and her kids, so he had to act quickly. He locked the kids inside the bathroom, securing the door with rope. He had thrown in a few blankets and some toys with the kids to help him stay, you know, to help them stay quiet and he thought, you know, that would be enough. <laughs> he took Shirley into her bedroom and removed all her clothes. He tied her wrists and ankles and laid her on the bed face down, head at the bottom of the bed, and he tied her ankles to the headboard. Her children did not stay quiet. They were pounding on the door, screaming for her, yelling at him not to hurt her. They were even yelling, I'm going to break down this door. I'm going to get through this door. You know, that's what Stephen was yelling. Don't hurt my mom. He ignored them, although it was making him nervous because he was thinking someone is going to hear them. He put a plastic bag over Shirley's head and then he secured that bag with cord. He then looped the cord that was tied to the bed around her throat as well so that the harder she struggled, the tighter it became around her neck. 
Her children continued screaming and pounding, not knowing that while they pound and scream, pounded and screamed for her, she was dying. Once she was dead, Dennis Rader stole a few pairs of her underwear and left. He later would state that he had wanted to hang the little girl and suffocate the boys, but the phone call had spooked him, and he didn't want to spend any more time there. Eight-year-old Bud picked up something hard, and he shattered the bathroom window and then crawled out. They went round to the front. They went back in the house and ran to their mother's bedroom, where they found her nude and bound with a bag over her head, not moving. The man was gone. The children ran screaming from their house. This is just heartbreaking. These poor, sweet babies, all they wanted was to get to their mother. Just to get to their mother. They wanted their mother. They wanted her to be okay. Shirley's neighbors saw the children, you know, saw and heard them running and screaming. And their names were James and Sharon. And they told detectives that the children had run to their house and that they went to Shirley's and discovered her dead in the bedroom. When police arrived, they brought Shirley out into the living room and they attempted CPR, but she was already gone. Detective Fletcher speculated that the killer of the Otero family may be responsible for this murder as well. There were, however, marked differences between the two cases. For instance, the killer had left the children alive. And, you know, obviously detectives don't know that he hadn't had left, you know, because he got spooked, because he got nervous. But there were enough similarities, the bindings etc. to make it think that make the the detectives think that it could be the same killer. And then if it was, they had a serial killer on their hands. This was something that Wichita police had never dealt with before. You know, serial killers as a rule are pretty rare and certainly in the 70s in Wichita, it was not something that was common. Although the 70s are a crazy-ass time for killers. You know, we've got Manson and Bundy and, you know, all, all these going on. But anyway, I digress. So another one of the detectives, though, posited the idea that the killer could also be responsible for Catherine Bright's murder. But Fletcher, at the time, and he works on the case for a while, he didn't believe it. He didn't buy that because it did not seem to fit with the Oteros and Shirley's murder because both of them were women with children. Although in Otero's case, the husband was there too. All right. So detectives Cornwell and Drawatsky, you remember him probably from the Catherine Bright case, were still working the Otero case and the Bright case and now this case. And Drawatsky suggested that maybe they were indeed dealing with a serial killer, some kind of pervert who chose victims at random, which most serial killers do. You don't really see a pattern until after they're caught. Like, you know, Ted Bundy liked brunettes with, you know, hair parted down the middle. Well, they couldn't really figure that out until several women had been murdered, right? Fitting that description. So, all right, so they're batting around the word serial killer, but not ready to announce to the public 
that there's a serial killer because that would mean panic, of course. All right. And at the time, the FBI had really just started coming up with, or had really just started in um, looking at the profile, you know, profiling serial killers. It wasn't like now there's all kinds of information, but then they were just really starting to compile that information about serial killers. And to them, he didn't quite meet the criteria because mainly he had stopped for three years. Remember, there was a three-year gap between Otero's and Catherine Bright and then now the murders of the murder of Shirley Bien. So the FBI are like, nah, serial killers can't stop once they start. So, you know, they kind of dissuaded detectives from thinking that this was a, a serial killer. All right. So they're still investigating, but not, like I said, ready to accept that there is a serial killer and certainly not ready to announce that publicly. All right. In December of the same year, 1977... 25-year-old Nancy Fox became Douchebag Dennis's next project or target. She worked as a secretary for the law company, and she had also recently picked up hours, as, hours at Heldsburg's Jewelry in the mall to earn extra money for Christmas presents. She had a two-year-old nephew who she loved to spoil. Raider first saw her when he was cruising her neighborhood for targets. He had specifically chosen Nancy's neighborhood because it was a lower middle class neighborhood and this had attracted single women, single mothers. And so he had been stalking around her neighborhood when he saw her and he focused in on her. He learned her routine. He learned her work schedule. He learned that she sang in the church choir that she liked to wear fashionable scarves, and that she was a bit of a neat freak. He knew that she worked hard where she worked and where she lived, and that she lived alone. So once again, a woman alone seems to be what he is looking for, because he thinks, you know, he can avoid having to deal with boyfriends and whatnot, although we see that that hasn't always worked in his favor, has it? All right, so on December 8th, he, 1977, he tells his wife that he has to study at the library and that he would be home late. Remember, he's a WSU student, and he actually did study at the library for a while, waiting for Nancy Fox to get off work. He knew what time she was going to get off work. He put on dark clothes, and he drove to Nancy's neighborhood. And he had his big bag of tools with him, of course, ropes, bindings, whatnot. He didn't forget them this time. <laughs> when he reached Nancy's house, he first knocked on the door. And then he moved to the back door when Nancy didn't answer. He cut the phone line and then he broke a window and got inside. Once again, he had to break a window and get in. This not, wasn't exactly what he had planned, but he figured it would work because it is dark, so he wasn't that worried about the window being broken, being seen. All right. He helped himself to a glass of water in her kitchen. He cleaned the water glass and then put it back in the cabinet. And then he waited. And she came in the front door, and she saw him. 
It was a small place. He saw, she saw him right away and she demanded, get out of my house. She grabbed the phone and declared that she was calling the police. He told her that he had cut the phone line. She wanted to know why he was in her house. You know, she's brave. I think I would have tried to just run back out the door, but she was ready to, you know, she wasn't going to take this guy's bullshit. So he says that he's a bad guy and he needs to tie her up and have sex with her. She says, get out. And he, of course, doesn't. She lights a cigarette and she's trying, it seems, to remain calm. And Raider talked to her about what he wanted to do, but assured her that she would be okay, that he wasn't going to kill her. Again, he's working that calm them down angle, make them trust you. He figures that will make them comply. Meanwhile, while he's talking to her, he dumps out her purse and he takes a few things that he wants as trophies. And shockingly, Nancy says to him, quote, let's get this over with so I can call the police, end quote. He grabs her arms and he pulls them behind her back and fastens cuffs onto her wrists. Now she's starting to get nervous. He gags her and he takes her clothes off, asking her if she ever had anal sex before. He wants her to think that he's going to rape her and leave. And he didn't really want sex from her at all. It wasn't about sex for him. We know it's about the binding, the torturing, the murdering for him. That's what gets him off. All right. So he noted that he was hard. He was turned on before he even slipped the belt around her neck. And he took the belt that he was wearing and put it around her neck and he tied it tight until she passed out. Not until she died, until she passed out. And this is something else that douchebag Dennis loved to do, and I think we mentioned it with the Otero case, too. Um, he liked to strangle them to the point of passing out, or until they passed out, let them come to, then go back to it, or get them to the point where they're about to pass out, and then ease up let them get some air and the squeeze again. He loved that kind of torture. All right. And he told her, I'm BTK. I killed that Otero family and Shirley Vien and you're next. Then he tightened the belt back around her throat this time until she was dead. He picked up her nightgown and masturbated into it. Finally, in his mind, he had committed a murder, a perfect murder. Nothing really went wrong. And he was very, very proud of it. Very proud of it. In fact, he was so fucking proud of it that he didn't want to keep it to himself. He thought it was such a great accomplishment that he wanted someone to know what he had done. So he goes to a payphone. And this is the next morning. He goes to a payphone while he's at work. He stops at a payphone. He's driving that ATD, ADT van around. All right. And he tells the dispatcher that Nancy Fox, and he gives her the, gives them the address and says, you'll be a fine, you'll find a homicide there. And then he hangs up. So police respond, of course, to that call. And indeed they find Nancy in her bedroom 
Meanwhile, douchebag Dennis was kicking himself for making that call because now he's thinking, oh shit, they've probably traced it. They know what payphone it was. I'm driving this ADT van. Somebody saw me. Um, and once again, he's freaking out. He's assured or he's sure that he's going to be arrested. And more specifically, he thought, well, shoot, you know. I'm not done. I want to keep killing, you know. So he's freaking out, but he doesn't get arrested. No one comes for him. Once again, he's freaking out, but no one comes for him. And more specifically for attention whore Dennis, no one is paying him any attention. So he decided that he had to do something about that. So he wrote a poem about Shirley Vian, and he sent it to the Wichita Eagle, the newspaper. The poem read, quote, Shirley Locks, Shirley Locks, wilt thou be mine? Thou shalt not scream, nor yet fee the line, but lay on a cushion and think of me and death and how it's going to be, end quote. The poem was signed BTK with a P.S., Poem for Fox Next. So, <laughs> laughable, right? We can see that he sucks at writing poetry, just like he sucks at murdering people and sucks as a human being. He's a failure at all of those things. All right. And, but he got accomplished what he wanted to get accomplished was that he wanted credit for the Fox, for Nancy Fox's murder he wanted it to be attributed to BTK. So he put that out there. I killed Shirley. I killed BTK. All right. Too bad for Dennis, though. When the poem, when the poem arrived at the Eagle, the mail carrier assumed it was a personal ad or something for the classified section, and it didn't have a check with it, so they filed it in the dead letter file and just left it. <laughs> uh, douchebag Dennis was pissed. Why hadn't the eagle published his poem? He's like a little baby. Why didn't I get the attention I wanted? No one's paying attention to me. All right. So he decided he had to go bigger. This time he sent a lengthy letter to KAKE TV which was a local Wichita TV station. The letter was two pages, and it also included a poem about Nancy Fox. He wrote BTK on the poem four times and drew nooses next to each BTK. He also included a drawing of a woman gagged and bound. The letter was mainly Raider complaining that the newspaper had not written anything about his poem to Shirley. He closed the letter, quote, how many do I have to kill before I get a name in the paper or some national attention? Do the cop think that all those deaths are not related? End quote. Douchebag. <laughs> like the first letter, this one contains several misspellings. This made police, once again, ponder if they were dealing with someone of below average intelligence or someone who was deliberately misspelling words as to appear less educated. 
You know, you would think that it would be the latter, given that Raider was enrolled in college, in college at the time. But as we have seen, you know, time and time again, Raider is quite dense. So it's very difficult to tell if he really could not write correctly, you know, mechanically, grammatically, or if he was trying to disguise himself in that way. All right. In the letter, Raider also mentioned the Oteros, particularly the hanging of Josephine Otero, along with the murders of Shirley and Nancy. He also mentioned another one, but did not name the victim. He apparently wanted to make it perfectly clear to the police that BTK was indeed a serial killer. He craved the infamy. Detective Lemunyan, who is now the lead detective on the case, agreed to do a live interview that night on KAKE TV and inform the public that police believed that they had a serial killer in their midst. It was time. He admitted that police did not know who he was or how to catch him. The interview aired at 6 p.m., the public, as expected, was horrified and even angry. Having poured over Raider's letter, it was clear to Lemonian that the killer craved the attention. So he thought, well, if that's what he wants, he's going to get it. Maybe it would be enough to get him to make a mistake, to somehow let it be known who he was, to slip up in some way. Lemonian held a press conference later that night, the same night that the interview aired, in which he confirmed what he had said on the show, and he told the public, particularly the female population, to be exceedingly careful. The killer they knew targeted women. He told the public about the letters and that the killer had threatened to kill again. For the next month, police escorted the news anchors of KAKE-TV home in case the killer went after them. The women of Wichita began to change their routines. Men started walking their female co-workers to their cars. Parents stopped letting their teenage daughters go out at night. The city was on edge. Police were now at least all in agreement that they were dealing with a serial killer. They consulted regularly with the FBI, who, as we had already discussed had just really begun studying the pathology of serial killers. And at this point, the FBI couldn't really help the Wichita, Wichita detectives in any way um, because serial killers, as we know, are notoriously hard to catch. And basically, you have to kind of wait for them to kill again and hope that they make a mistake or hope that some kind of pattern um, shows itself that you can look for. All right. After Nancy's murder and the news conference that followed... Dennis Rader, now officially being called the BTK Strangler, or just BTK, by the media, stopped killing for a while. Once again, he stopped. Why? The police, of course, were, were puzzled. They didn't know. And what they didn't know was that Dennis Rader's second child was born in June. A daughter they called Carrie. And I suppose he had gotten busy with family life again. Remember how he had talked about having a wife and kid had gotten in the way of his 
plans to murder, torture women. Well, once again, it seems that that is also happening. All right. But that did not keep the people from people of Wichita from being scared and from wanting to find out who he was. And it didn't keep the police from wanting that either. Ken Stevens, who was a reporter for the Wichita Eagle, was consumed with BTK. And he wanted to be the one to report anything and everything about the case. He and he and or one or two of his colleagues talked to Detective Lemonyan every day. And Lemonyan would fill them in on any developments. They worked, you know, closely together. And the police arrested someone in March. And he looked good for the murders. And Lemonyan was so sure that they had caught BTK that he told the Eagle that they could print that BTK had been caught. Lemonyan was wrong. The man's blood DNA did not match the DNA of the semen found on the Otero murder at the Otero murder scene. They were back to square one. Over the next two years, Raider did not murder anyone, but he did. He did send letters. He had taken to making photocopies of the letters and sending the copies. The police assumed that this was his attempt to somehow cover his tracks. What BTK didn't know, and that the police found out, was that every copy machine leaves its own kind of trace. The police became experts on the different machines, what ink they used, what paper, what pulp, etc. Eventually, Xerox, the main you know manufacturer of copy machines then, and probably still, um, Xerox ep- Experts and police figured out that BTK had copied one of the letters at the downtown library and another one at the Life Sciences Building at Wichita State University. So police pondered, maybe he was a student. So they started looking into that, working that angle. Five years went by and not a peep from BTK. The police were still working the case, but it had taken a back seat to other more recent, you know, cases. That is, until a new chief allowed Officer Lemonian to handpick an elite team of investigators and gave police PCs, personal computers, to use. This was the first time they had access to personal computers. Remember, the internet was not a thing. Not yet. All right. Um, fresh eyes, they thought, you know, might help uncover a clue that had been overlooked. The case files were, and all of the evidence were all brought to the new team and they poured over them, studying every detail they could, everything. They talked to profiles in the FBI again. They talked to psychologists. They were doing everything they could to try to put together some kind of, you know, track to follow, some kind of profile, someone to look for, for these murders. So this task team compiled lists of men who were residents of the county in Wichita and who were 21 to 35 in 1974 when the Otero murders were committed. Another list of male WSU students and then another list 
more lists of violent offenders, sex offenders, burglars, Air Force personnel, animal abusers, peepers, etc. The idea being that they were going to try to find men whose names appeared on more than one of their lists. What they didn't know was that their killer, Dennis Douchebag Dennis Rader, was on the WSU list, but he was not on the other lists. He had no criminal record, and although he had been in the Air Force, he was out by the time that he had committed those murders. Additionally, thousands of names appeared on more than one of the lists, and it would take them forever to follow up on all of those men. So, you know, that tactic didn't really help them at all. All right, so the task force then added Catherine Bright's case file to the BTK files and noted the similarities. They did have one of the bullets that had struck Kevin Bright in the head from the 22 caliber Colt. They compiled a list of gun orders in the area, then eventually narrowed their list down to 30 men in Wichita and another 185 living elsewhere in the U.S. So these were people who owned this type of gun. All right, so a detective on the case, Detective Holmes, suggested that they obtain DNA from all of these men. Teams of detectives drove all over the country asking gun-owning men to give them a blood sample, and surprisingly, almost everyone on the list complied without question. None of the samples matched. So again, they're kind of back to square one. They have no idea who this is. In October of 1984, now we are now 10 years since the murders of the Oteros and six years since his last murders. An FBI criminal profile named Roy Hazelwood, along with some of his colleagues, gave the Wichita Police Department their professional description of who they thought BTK was, based on, you know, the information they had pro- that they had compiled. He was, they said, a man who practiced bondage in everyday life, a control freak, a sadist, and that he was somebody who could interact well with people but didn't have any close friends. He didn't allow people to really know him. Hazelwood told the police that he probably could do could hold a job just fine as long as it was a job that allowed him some freedom. He wouldn't like to be told what to do. For example, a job that included some driving alone. He also told police that their killer probably collected bondage items and read detective books and magazines. We know that Hazelwood is pretty much spot on when it came to Dennis Rader, but the police don't know that, of course. And this analysis, although, you know, it is spot on, brought them no closer to catching their killer. In April of 1985, Dennis Rader comes back and kills again. This time, he picked someone very close to home. 53-year-old Marine Hedge lived just six houses away from Dennis Rader and his family, his wife, son, and daughter. 
Raider knew that she lived alone. Everyone in the neighborhood knew that her husband had died not long ago, making her a widow. Maureen was well-liked. She was active in church. She was known to bake cookies and give them to neighbors and bring them to church functions. He deemed this murder Project Cookie. Fuck right off, Dennis. Fuck right off. <laughs> All right. His plan was to carry out the murders during one of his son's Cub Scout outings. He was a Boy Scout troop leader. So this fucking douchebag <laughs> fakes a headache on the night of a camp outing with the Cub Scouts. And he, so he tells some of the other dads, you know, I got a really bad headache. I got to go. And it's very nearby. It's not, you know, like a far off camp or anything. And so he leaves his son there with the other dads and uh, campers. And he drives towards home, pulling over along the way to change out of the Cub Scout leader uniform and into dark clothes. He stops at a bowling alley Brings, or buys a beer and splashes it on his face and clothes, trying to appear drunk. And then he leaves his car there and calls a cab. He slurs his speech when he's talking to the cabbie to try to convince him that he's drunk. And then he asks the cabbie to drop him off a few blocks away from Marine Hedge's house. He figures that if, you know, anyone ever mentions him, the cabbie could just say, oh, you know, some drunk guy. And he wouldn't be connected to the murders. So he's starting to think more, I don't know, proactive, I guess, you know, you know, than he was before. Ditches the car, you know, at a business where it will be seen, right? All right. So then he walks to Maureen's house and he sees her car on the driveway and he's a little pissed off because he wanted to get inside before she came home and catch her by surprise. Well, he cut the phone line and jimmied the door open with a screwdriver, taking his time to do so. And when he got inside, he was happy to discover that she really was at home and he could lay and wait after all. Eventually, she came home and this time she had a male friend with her. And Raider just hid and listened. He didn't come out and confront the man this time. Maybe this fucker's learning. All right. So he waits until the man leaves and Marine Hedge goes to bed. He climbs into bed with her and strangles her to death. This time, he did something very much out of character. He took her body to another place to dump it. Before he dumped her, though, Driving her own car, he took her to his own church, to which he had keys. At this time now, he was the president, the head of the church council. So he had the keys, and he takes her into the church. You know, has all her clothes off, binds her, gags her, puts high heels on her, and poses her in different positions, and then he takes Polaroids of her so that he can have them for later. 
Then he dumps her body in a ditch, and he drives her car to the bowling alley to retrieve his own car and leaves it there. When her body was discovered nine days later, police thought of BTK. I think they probably always thought of BTK whenever they came across a murder because, you know, he was still out there somewhere. But this murder did not fit the other murders. He had never dumped a body before or murdered a woman older than 38. So they didn't attribute this murder to him. The next year, September 16th, 1986, Dennis Rader gathers his killing materials and this time he adds a pair of leather shoelaces, hoping that the leather would make strangulation go quicker. And he puts them inside a briefcase. He liked to use this briefcase trick. He disguised himself as working for the phone company and put on a hard, hard hat. And he knocked on the door of an elderly couple that lived next door to his target, to his project, to try out the ruse on them. And it worked. They let him in without a fuss, and he pretended to check their telephone line. Next, he knocked on Vicky Wiegerl's door. She was the target. She was a bit weary. She was a bit suspicious, and she didn't want to let him in. But unfortunately, she did. She showed him the line in the, li- in the dining room, and he pretended to check it. Then he pulled out a gun, and he told her to go into the bedroom into the bedroom. Her son, who was two years old at the time, was in the living room, and she said to BTK, what about my son? And BTK said he didn't know. She told him that her husband would be home soon. This did not stop him. Vicky cried as he forced her to lay down on the bed. He bound her wrists and ankles with the leather laces, and Vicky started praying out loud. She broke free from her laces and she started fighting and screaming. He hit her in the face over and over again until she was quiet. And he grabbed at her throat. She continued, you know, fighting until they both fell off the bed. And then she was quiet. He grabbed a pair of pantyhose and he got them around her neck and he pulled. Once she was dead, he posed her and took pictures of her. He did not masturbate at the scene this time. He was thinking that maybe her husband was going to be coming home. He knew the schedule, but he thought, well, what if he's coming home for lunch or something? And he was afraid because she had been screaming that someone would have may have heard. So he left, and he paid no attention to the little boy. The little boy was left unharmed. All right. So Vicky's husband, Bill does come home for lunch. And at first he doesn't think his wife is home and he's kind of pissed because he sees the son, you know, there by himself. And he noticed that the car was gone. So he's like, what the hell, you know, but he does find her after the Pardon me. He does, you know, find her after a bit. And what Raider had done was he had driven their car, also a Monte Carlo-like Marine's car, different color, 
to dump the hard hat and the pantyhose into separate dumpsters at different businesses. But when he arrived back to Vicky Wiggerl's neighborhood, he heard the sirens. So he had, you know, he had planned to take it back to the house and park it where it had been parked. But he decided he would ditch it, and he ditches it at a butcher shop. And then he walks to his own car and gets in and drives off. So detectives initially suspected Bill of killing his wife. And they were pretty confident of it. They, you know, they went hard at him. And, you know, who can really blame them? Because a lot of the times, as you know, if you've watched Dateline and those other shows, you know, or listened to podcasts, you know that a lot of times it is the husband. It is the spouse. So Holmes and Detective Landweir, who are a part of that task force, they look at the scene and they're like, no, 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 no. It's not Bill. It's probably BTK. He's back. So Bill, although they, you know, did question him, he was never charged. But unfortunately, some people in the neighborhood labeled him as guilty and did think that he had done it, you know, until eventually it comes out and, you know, BTK is caught. So with that, curious listener, we are going to pause here. We have already gone, you know, way farther than I normally lengthwise than I normally like to do for episodes. There's just so much to unpack here with BTK, but we are, you know, closing in on him. We're getting towards the end. So part three will be the last part. And in, in that part, we will finally be talking about his capture and his sentencing and all that good stuff. Um, I thank you so much for listening. Please reach out via Instagram, Twitter, send me a Gmail, all that good stuff. And until next time, curious listener, I hope you have a good week. So, you know, piece of literal garbage, a 32-year-old grown-ass man coming up and, you know, flirting with or hitting on or propositioning a 14-year-old child. In any event, she rebuffed him, kept walking, and that's when she would have sent the text to her boyfriend, the text that was, you know, I think I just got kidnapped, oh my god, oh my fucking god, you know, that text. Um, She didn't know, he didn't go away when she kept walking and he had come up behind her, he ambushed her from behind, assaulted her, attacked her, and then stomped her to death. So, you know, really horrific, horrible. It will please you to know, though, curious listener, that he was charged and was convicted of first-degree murder, first murder and assault with an attempt at sexual penetration. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. He, you know, in in court, did not apologize, kept saying he was innocent, you know, showed no remorse at all. And um, he tried to get the conviction thrown out, saying that he had inadequate counsel. That's a move that you'll see, you know, they often will try to use. It was not thrown out. It was upheld in 2018, and he is still serving 
to this day. So good riddance to bad rubbish, as they say. So thank you so much for listening, Curious Listener. We will be back, I will be back next week with another episode of Corn Fed Killer. Please send us an email with any suggestions, comments, any ideas for cases to cornfedkillerpodcast at gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram, Twitter, all the things. Until next time, Curious Listener.